Uh, if you are here for the first time, we're so thankful that you're, uh, you've decided to worship with us today. You know, next week, uh, we as a church are going to be celebrating three years. Yeah, praise the Lord. As three years of God's faithfulness to us as a body of believers. Uh, and we're going to be, we're going to have food. We're going to have baptisms. It is going to be a big day in the life of our church. And it's going to be something that you don't want to miss. Uh, so I'll be looking forward to seeing you there. But today we're starting our journey through the book of Ephesians. And so I want to take, yeah, praise the Lord, this is a great book. And so I want to take about 10 to 15 minutes and set up just this first section in this book we've titled as a series, Gospel Identity. And so as I said, I have a confession, okay? New Year's Eve is my absolute least favorite holiday. It always has been. Um, just hang with me here. It'll all come together. Okay, y'all, this, this past year, I stayed up for the first time um, until midnight uh, for the first time in over almost 10 years. And it wasn't because of me. It was because of my, my kids wanted to stay, stay up. You know, I tried to do the whole pre-recorded countdown thing, but they didn't buy it. <laughs> and so we watched a movie. Me and my youngest, we fell asleep. Uh, my alarm went off. I woke up. We turned off the movie. We did the whole countdown thing. We watched the ball drop, and then we all were in bed by 12.15. And the reason I'm not a big fan of New Year's Eve is because it is just extremely predictable and anticlimactic. I mean, we, we, we count down from 10. Uh, the ball pretty undramatically drops very slowly, might I add. And we all shout, Happy New Year! I mean, it's literally the same thing every year, year after year. It never fails. It's the same thing. 10, 9, 8, you kind of go down, Happy New Year. Now, don't get me wrong, I love an excuse to spend time with friends and family, but I'd rather just go to bed at 10 and call it a day, which is what we've done ever since our first was born. You know, and although New Year's Eve is not exactly my favorite, I will say I really do appreciate New Year's Day. You know, I'm a, I'm a big New Year's resolution guy. I, I'm not terrible at keeping them, absolutely terrible at keeping them, but I do appreciate them. You know, I think I've determined to keep the same one every single year until I actually accomplish it and keep it all year long. But regardless of the resolution, I appreciate the opportunity to reflect back on the previous year and then to look ahead for the year ahead, look to the year ahead. And there's all sorts of leadership books that talk about the importance of creating regular habits as a way to achieve these goals and resolutions we set. You know, like the book Seven, uh, the book Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and Take the Stairs, and Atomic Habits. Like I, I've personally really enjoyed these. I really enjoy these books, but they all kind of say the same thing. And the way that James Clear says it in Atomic Habits is that our habits cast a vote for who we want to become. And I think it really makes sense. Like if we want to become a runner, we need to run. If we want to become a writer, we need to write. Essentially saying what we do determines who we are. He says every day our habits cast a vote for what we are becoming. And in many ways, again, I think these things are true. Again, if we don't run, we're not a runner. If we don't write, we're not a writer. If we don't organize things, we're not an organized person. I think there's a lot of good wisdom we can learn from this. But what we'll see in the book of Ephesians is that as Christians, we have a different way to determine our identity. And it's not based on what we do. Yes, it's good and right to figure out how God has uniquely made us and wired us and gifted each of us. And I'm all about us growing in self-awareness or of our wirings and how we affect others and trying to improve and being more disciplined and seeing real change in our life. But these are all secondary at best. Our primary and foundational identity as Christians has absolutely nothing to do with the habits we form or the actions we take. The book of Ephesians shows us it's the other way around. 
Our identity, it informs and drives the actions that we take. You know, our vision statement, it says, we exist to see Jesus change lives and to reach the world. And how are we going to accomplish that? Specifically, the life change part. It's not going to be first through behavior modification, just getting rid of bad habits and forming good habits, which again, I'm all for. We should do these things, but again, it's secondary at best. We don't start there. We first start by remembering and understanding who we are, not what we're seeking to become. Our identity as Christians is not first a runner or a writer or mom or dad. It's not even male or female. It's not based on our skin color or family heritage or nationality. It's not based on our relationship status or occupation or social status or personality or good habits or bad habits. No, our identity as Christians is given to us by God. You know, one of the greatest gifts that we have as followers of Jesus is a very secure identity that does not change, that we don't do anything to work for. It's a free identity that is totally given to us and handed to us by God himself. There's, and if you're not a Christian here today, I think this should really intrigue you. And what I'm not saying is that we're all cookie cutter mimics of each other. No, not at all. We're, we're all uniquely made by God himself. But what I am saying is that every person on this planet at some level is seeking to figure out who they are, asking the question, who am I? And I, and I think we can agree, Christian or not, this is a big question. Like, because if we don't know who we are, or even who we're seeking to become, we're just left kind of spinning. And, and maybe we wouldn't say it exactly that way. But the way in which we live our lives, the confidence and security we have, the peace and the satisfaction that we find, like this is, like this is all, it's all heavily influenced by our identity because at its core, our identity is the foundation for who we are. Just to give a dramatic and kind of a silly illustration. I think we can all agree that if an elephant thinks it's a fish, that elephant is just going to struggle in life. Like, it's going to wonder why it keeps sinking to the bottom when all the other fish are swimming around. Like, it's going to constantly think something is just not right. It's going to get frustrated and maybe be fearful or worried, uh, maybe angry at times. And why? Because that elephant doesn't know who it is. It's an elephant trying to live like a fish. And the reality is, if we don't know who we are, we're a lot like that elephant trying to live like a fish. And yes, that's a kind of a silly picture but if we're honest, it's pretty easy for us to feel kind of the same way when our job lets us down or our marriage or families don't meet our expectations. We all of a sudden feel like an elephant trying to keep up with a fish, like something is just not right here. And this is not just in macro, like big picture things. This happens to each of us every day. And so easy every single day for our identity just to be misplaced and to just kind of slip. I mean, we all wake up every day, myself included, trying to define our identity. I mean, just me personally, as a pastor, it is very easy for me to let how I preach and deliver this sermon to determine my value. It's easy to let where we live or what we drive or where we work or how we look and dress or what major we're in or what grades we make or how we do ministry to define our identity. And maybe we wouldn't say those things define us because we know we're not supposed to say that. But the level at which they affect us mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually may speak a little differently. Again, it's identity creep. 
And it happens to each of us. And if we're not sure of our identity and foundation, we're just kind of drifting in the wind. And we have to agree that figuring out who we are, this is massively important. You know, when I was in the seventh grade, we did this year-long project that was called just that, Who Am I? We spent the entire year trying to articulate and define and figure out who we were. And at the end of the year, we all had these notebooks with all sort of things that we thought defined us. You know, at the end of the year, we could lay down this two-inch binder on a table and say, this is me in a book. And I had things like, I'm a son of Rick and Carly and Hovis, and talked about my family heritage. I talked about my, uh, how I was the youngest of three kids and talked about my brother and my sister. I had a whole section on all my friends and I talked about my love for sports and baseball and basketball and football and golf. I had a whole section on all my favorite hobbies and all the places I love to travel and the camps that I've been to. And I even had things that I thought I was supposed to be and aspired to be. But in reality, I didn't actually believe it, but it still made the notebook. And still today, I think it was a really good and helpful project. But I can't help but think if we today each made our own notebooks answering that question, who am I? We just need to ask, what would be in that notebook? Yes, in my notebook today, I would have things like husband, dad, son, brother, pastor, and maybe even have several pages on the things that I enjoy doing. But what we're going to see as we dive into the book of Ephesians this year is that we are are a Christian following Jesus. Like as a Christian uh, following Jesus, God actually hands us our notebook. And he says to us, this is who you are. You don't have to figure it out. I made you, I know you, this is you. And the first three chapters of Ephesians is a major portion of that notebook. And y'all, it is astounding who we are as we are as in Christ, if we're in Christ. Yes, there are things that God will continue to show us how he's uniquely wired and gifted each of us, which is the church we, we try to explore. But these first three chapters of Ephesians, they show us our gospel identity. I mean, we could easily say, uh, like, fill up those first several pages of that Who Am I notebook. And so as we go through this book over the next several months, we'll see that we don't have to work for this identity, that our actions don't define this identity, that our foundational identity is not the sum of what we do. No, our primary identity as followers of Jesus, it's a free gift given to us by God. We don't work for this identity trying to cast a vote saying this is who we are. No, we, as, as we'll see in the book of Ephesians, this absolutely is our identity. And we live from it, not for it. Again, if, if you're not a Christian here today, this should be really intriguing to you to want to figure this whole following Jesus thing out because it creates in us an unshakable confidence that cannot be robbed from us or taken from us or, anybody, from, or from anybody or anything. Like if we have this, it cannot be taken. Knowing who we are in Christ, brothers and sisters, this is a remarkable gift. And just so we can kind of understand the letter of Ephesians and what we're kind of getting into, if you took this book, this six-chapter letter in the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters, like we've already said, would be all about who we are. It's our gospel identity. It's our heritage. It's all the things we put in our Who Am I notebook. And these three chapters, they're going to take us to Easter. And then after Easter, we'll see this response from this identity in chapters four through six. Yes, the book of Ephesians, it only takes about 20 minutes to read, but it is packed with a punch. You know, one commentator said that the book of Ephesians, pound for pound, may be the most influential book in history. Like, this is a dense book with rich foundational gospel theology showing us who we are when we are in Christ. 
And so if, you're, if, I, if I were going through the Bible with a new Christian, I, I would first take them through the, one of the Gospels showing them who Jesus is. But the second book that I would take them through is the book of Ephesians. And so yes, we could go through this book just a few weeks doing a chapter at a time, but what I'm excited to do is to go very slowly and really look at and inspect just the depths of the treasures that are in this book. Week after week, we're going to just swim in the depths of who we are in Christ, and we're going to lay down and inspect our foundation as a church, which just to get to it as our main idea today, Jesus is the foundation for the church. And as I say that, my prayer for our church over the next several months as we soak up our gospel identity and foundation, my prayer is that we would be like a sponge just each week, just soaking up who we are in Christ. So much so that when we get squeezed like a sponge, the goodness of Jesus in the gospel, it just gets squeezed out of us. And I can't help but think of what an incredible opportunity to week after week to encourage those around us to come and hear just of the immeasurable treasures we have in Jesus. You know, everybody around us is searching to figure out and asking the question, who am I? And what an opportunity for those around us to come and hear about who God created them to be in Christ. But specifically for today, we're kicking off Ephesians by looking at just the first three verses ultimately seeing that Jesus is our foundation. So let's go ahead and get into those first three verses, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In these three verses... We see who this letter is written by, which is Paul, and also who it's written to, which is the church at Ephesus. And Paul, he gives like an abbreviated version of his typical greeting. But what I want to point out is that Jesus is just all over these three verses. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He says, the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. In verse 2, he says, grace and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. I mean, just in those first three verses, we see Christ or Jesus five times. Everything in Ephesians is pointing to Jesus, including this short and very simple introduction. The book of Ephesians, it's all about Jesus. It's written by Paul to the church about Jesus, showing as our main idea, again, that Jesus is the foundation for the church. And it's not just about Jesus as a distant historical figure. No, it's a letter about Jesus for the church in a very intimate way. The book of Ephesians, it's a book about the church uh, that is in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, is said over and over again. We see it just twice in, our, in these first three verses. And I, and I love that because, as one pastor said, it reminds us that as Christians, we always have two, uh, two uh, residencies or two zip codes, so to speak. Like one is where we physically live. That, we can, that, that, that zip code changes as we move around. Like it, we, we live here physically in Florida, but the others, other residency, the other zip code that does not change, that is in Christ. New City, we as a church right now, we are in Christ. We are living in Christ if you are a follower of Jesus. And so Jesus is the foundation for the church. That's what Paul is trying to get across to all the churches that get this letter, which includes our church here today. 
Well, this, this, this letter was likely passed around to multiple churches all over the region of Ephesus, not just one specific church. It's a very generic, warm letter instructing really every church. And so as we kick off this series today, we're going to see from our three verses in chapter one, we're going to see Jesus for Paul, Jesus for Ephesus, and then number three, Jesus for the church. And as we go through this today, we'll ask, who is this guy, Paul? And what's this city Ephesus all about? And then how does Jesus integrate with the church? And when we say church, again, we need to make sure we're not talking about a service. We're not talking about a building or an organization or even a ministry. Rather, it's people. Church is not something we go to. It's a people and a community that we belong to. Church is a family. It's a group of people centered around Jesus. And if Jesus is not part of the community, it can't be the church. And I, and I know this is not going to be popular, but if you don't claim Jesus as Lord, yes, listen, you're absolutely welcome to be part of what we do. We love you. We want you around. Like You're absolutely welcome here. We desire your friendship. But the only way to be in the family called the church is to be in Christ. Like Jesus is the doorway into the family of God. Again, when we squeeze the book of Ephesians like a sponge, what comes out is Jesus. And so let's dive into that first verse. Look again at what it says to get our first two points. We'll get two points out of verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And so right off the bat, we see that this letter is written by Paul, who calls himself an apostle of Christ, leading us to number one, Jesus for Paul. Now, we're going to spend a lot of time in this letter written by this man named Paul. And so I think it's important to know who this guy is that we're learning from. In fact, Paul, he wrote 13 books of the New Testament. And so he's a pretty big deal. And so who is he? Well, to put it, put it frankly, uh, Paul, at one point, he murdered Christians. Like he flat out persecuted, killed, and mocked people who worshipped Jesus. And then Jesus captured his heart. Jesus in Acts chapter 9 shows up to Paul, who was named Saul at the time on the Damascus road, and said to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he encounters Jesus, and he goes from persecuting Jesus to preaching Jesus. In about a three days time, Paul went from a Jesus hater to a Jesus lover. And why? Because he encountered Jesus. You know, this is what I'm praying for in the next season of our church. That we would just see radical life transformation of people adamantly uh, who are opposed to Jesus just becoming Jesus freaks. Just proclaiming it to everyone that they see. You know, I'm praying that we'd see stories in our church that look like that of the Apostle Paul who go from Jesus haters to Jesus proclaimers. And how does this happen? Well, very simply put, they encounter Jesus. They see Jesus for who he is, and then God just radically changes their life. Well, next week we're celebrating three years as a church. It's going to be a celebration again with food and, and baptisms, and we're going to talk about the goodness of Jesus. If you haven't been baptized and you're a follower of Jesus, next week is the week to do it. I mean, just talk to us about it. You know, it's very simply put, uh, showing that the old life is gone and the new life is here. Like baptism is a picture of renewal and rebirth that we are in, we are now in Christ. 
But what I'm getting at here is that this is an opportunity to invite friends and families and coworkers to come and hear about the faithfulness of God to our church, and not because of anything we've done, but because Jesus is alive and active, because Jesus, he's real and true. I mean, if you know anybody that has expressed interest uh, just in, in church or checking things out or searching or open to Jesus, do whatever you can next week to get them in this room. Because just what if next week at our three-year birthday, God captures the hearts of people and zealously changes them uh, to become truth proclaimers, just like the Apostle Paul? God did it for Paul. He did it for me. He did it for many of you. And so we better believe he'll keep doing it over and over and over again until he returns. So again, who is this guy named Paul? Well, he killed Christians. And then he became a Christian. He preached the gospel, traveled around, started churches, discipled people, got put in jail often, and wrote letters from jail. But what I want to point out from the text is something that Paul specifically identifies with. He says he was an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Essentially saying God made Paul an apostle. So we need to ask, what's an apostle? Well, apostle literally means in the original language, it means sent once. Paul was saying he was sent by the will of God, but what we need to make clear here, here, and this is kind of often debated, and this is one of those words that needs to be defined when used, but what we need to make clear is that the office and the title of apostle, it was uniquely given to the 12 disciples and also to Paul. It was uniquely given to those who are called by God, who visibly witnessed the resurrected Jesus. And so today, the office and position of apostle is not something that still exists because with that unique office and position that was given to Paul, as we see in Scripture, uh, came an authority from God to make commands on the church as a spokesperson for God that would have held the same authority as Scripture. In fact, most of the New Testament was written by those who held the office of apostle. Now, Now, as I say that, We can, however, say that missionaries and church planters are sent out by God using that exact same word, apostle. Like there is an apostolic gift and work of ministry that is is still present today where we are sent out to start new works in new places. I mean, every week, how do we end our service? We say, New City Church, you are sent out. We want you to live apostolically, taking the gospel to our community. We're living sent like an apostle. But the difference is we absolutely do not have authority to make demands on the church in an authoritative way that holds the same authority as the Bible. So all that to say, when Paul says, hi, I'm the apostle Paul, he's got some weight behind his name. He's very simply saying he has authority over these churches he's writing to. Maybe it would be like getting an encouraging letter from the president of your school. And they say, hi, I'm I'm president so-and-so. And having that title of president adds a little bit more weight behind what they say. So again, this is a beautiful picture of God's grace. To take a murderer and a slanderer of Jesus, to then have him encounter Jesus, radically change his life, and then be an authoritative figure for the church. Church, that's grace. If you want to know what grace is, it's receiving God's favor in spite of our disfavor. There's no reason Paul should have held this position except for maybe one reason, and that's grace. It's God's grace. And so again, who is Paul? Paul is a man that understands who he once was. He's he's humbled by the grace of God and is writing to a group of churches that he loves dearly. 
New City, Jesus changed Paul's life and he wants the same thing for Ephesus. Leading us to our second point, number two, Jesus for Ephesus. You know, in verse one, Paul is addressing this letter to the saints who are in Christ Jesus. They're Jesus followers in the region of Ephesus, which was a major city. Just a fun fact today is known as modern day Turkey, which kind of makes sense after looking at Revelations 2, seeing how these churches in over time tragically kind of drifted away from their first love. You know, Revelations 2 shows us how the church at Ephesus uh, over time kind of got away from that fa- their foundation of Jesus that Paul's writing about, which should be a warning for us. But at the time, it was one of the top five largest cities in the world. So it was a major city. It was heavily populated. Ephesus was mixed with multiple different types of paganism, like some were sophisticated that dove into Greek enlightenment, while some were rather kind of sleazy that carved images on stones pointing people to brothels. It was also home to one of the Greek goddesses, Artemis, whose temple was actually one of the original seven wonders of the world. And not to mention, there was also emperor worship, where they regularly called out to Caesar, saying, Caesar is Lord. And so you can kind of imagine the cultural conflict when this group of Christians in Ephesus were saying and proclaiming, no, Jesus is Lord. So Paul, a man changed by Jesus, is writing to a church that has opposition at every corner with spiritual warfare in full force. And what does Paul write to them about? He writes to them about who they are in Christ. He starts with their identity. He gives them Jesus. I mean, when we look at historical Ephesus and the challenges that they faced, being imprisoned or killed for calling Jesus Lord, and then when we look at Acts chapter 19, seeing all that happened in this city of Ephesus before Paul wrote this letter, where Paul spent about three and a half years seeing them cast out demons and performing miracles, I mean, magicians were repenting and turning to Jesus, laying 50,000 pieces of silver at their feet that would have been about like $6 million today. Yes, there was incredible spiritual opposition, but even more so, the Spirit of God was absolutely dominating this opposition. The Spirit of God was moving in power in Ephesus. And so when Paul writes to this church in their context from his jail cell, might I add, he's reminding them of who they are in Christ. He's reminding them of what power they possess. He was filling them with courage by reminding them of their gospel identity. Jesus worked in Paul's life, and Jesus was doing a remarkable work in Ephesus through the faithful churches. But what I love about this introduction in this first verse is that he calls those who are faithful in Jesus, he calls them saints. What a beautiful picture. That if we are in Christ, we're no longer called sinners, we're called saints saints. And these faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Ephesus, do they have sin in their life? Yes, they live in a fallen world. But Paul doesn't say to them, you faithful sinners. No, he calls them faithful saints. Listen to me, New City. If you proclaim Jesus as Lord today, your identity today is saint. You're a saint. Saint is not left only for pastors or super religious people in robes or for people for five years after they die that have gone through an in-depth process showing service or heroic value that perform miracles and then confirmed through a long process of the church. No, Paul called these former pagans in Ephesus that gave their life to Jesus, he calls them saints, which means set apart and holy. The way to becoming a saint and being set apart 
is by nothing we do or no process we go through, that name and title is given to us by God because of our faith in Jesus. Again, listen to me. If you call Jesus Lord, God looks at you and says, you're a saint. You are holy and set apart by God. No, we don't need robes and crowns to be called saints. No, Jesus wore that and he went to the cross and he died so all those that believe in Jesus could be called saints. And what good news for us today. Because if you're a Jesus follower, your identity is not the mistake that you made last night. Your identity is not how you keep falling short with the same thing. No, that is not your identity. No, your identity, if you are in Christ, is saint. It's holy. Are we battling sin? Yes. But guess what? If you are in Christ, sinner is not your identity. It's saint. Struggling Christian, hear that today. You're a saint. You're holy. You're set apart. And maybe you think, no, I'm not. You don't know what I've done. You don't know my doubts. You don't know my sin. And you're right. Maybe I don't. But guess what? Jesus does. And he looks at you because of your faith in Jesus. And he says to you, you're a saint. Not because of you, not because of your sin, but because of Jesus. Paul, who murdered and stoned Christians, who persecuted the church, he's called St. Paul. And why? Not because of a special process through the church uh, that he went through after his death. No, it was entirely because of the grace and mercy of Jesus. Paul needed Jesus and he knew it. The city of Ephesus needed Jesus. And lastly, we'll see that the church needs Jesus, leading us to number three, Jesus for the church. Yes, this letter was for the church at Ephesus, but this is also for us today. We, the people of God, were deemed saints, but we're saints that are in an ongoing process. Like we are in desperate need for Jesus. Look at verse two again, seeing Paul's brief intro. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of those lines uh, that Paul said often, grace and peace to you. And it's often one of those we kind of quickly pass over, but we must think if Paul said it regularly and repeatedly and and rhythmically uh, over and over again in most of his letters, if it was worth repeating, this is a weighty thing for Paul. Again, Paul, he was very aware of the grace that God showed him in his life. He was very aware of the peace and joy that he found in Jesus. And he wanted to regularly remind all of his churches, don't lose sight of grace. We need grace. And why? Because, well, our natural bent is to try to do things on our own. Our natural bent is to live in our own strength and to try to pull up our life by our bootstraps, so to speak. But the problem is we can't do it. We can't live up to the standard that God holds for us. God wants better for us, but we struggle to uphold it. And so we need grace. And Paul, in most of his letters, he starts with this gentle reminder. Hey, there is grace for you. There's forgiveness for you. And when we live with this daily grace, we can then also be at peace. You know, peace comes to those who not just believe in Jesus, but trust in Jesus. Kind of trusting that God is over all things and in all things and is ultimately good and for our good. And trusting that, it just it brings, it helps bring us incredible peace. And all of a sudden, our hardships and challenges and wounds and hurts, when we know that Jesus holds them in his hands and then he gives us grace and that he's for our good, worries and fears, yes, they're there, they're hard. We wrestle through them, but with God's peace, they more easily kind of work through them and they, kind of, they can drift away. 
Because fears often come when we trust ourselves and not the Lord. When we lose sight of God's goodness and in contrast, peace comes when we just fully trust the Lord. When we lack peace, it's likely somewhat of an indicator that somewhere in our life we're struggling to trust in God's power and goodness. And unfortunately, this happens to each of us. And Paul says, just as a regular reminder to each of us, hey, there's peace for you. Peace has come. There's peace peace in Christ. Trust the Lord. And what does Paul then do? Well, he spends the next three chapters of Ephesians showing us why we can be at peace and how we've received grace. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, this, uh, the first part of our series, seeing our gospel identity, is the outworking of grace and peace in the life of a Christian. I mean, just look at the grace and peace that comes just from verse 3. We're going to be, we're going to spend, we're going to look at this, this verse this week and also next week just because it's so good. This is a small example. Paul says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just chew on that for a second. Paul is telling these churches to bless the Lord, to praise the Lord, not just the Lord Jesus, but God our Father. He's saying, hey, you can be at peace because your heavenly Father who watches over you and perfectly protects you, your God who provides for you, He's immensely blessed. That God is immensely blessed. Church, our Father, our heavenly Father is immensely blessed. He's got all the riches in the world, both physical and spiritual, just at His fingertips. And our Father who holds everything in His hands with all the riches just at His fingertips, He then, because of Jesus, extends all those spiritual blessings, not physical blessings, all the time. He says spiritual blessings in verse 3, and God blesses us with all of those spiritual blessings that He has at His fingertips. And He just gives them all to us. Just let that sit for just a second. Every spiritual blessing on the planet that God has as his own blessing for himself, he says to you, if you are in Christ, he says, here, my blessings are your blessings. My power is your power. My love is your love. My resources are also your resources. Paul says every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours. Y'all, that is just unreal I mean, if you believe in Jesus, just from what we've seen so far in these three verses, we've seen we're no longer called sinners. No, we're called saints. Like we're fathered by the God of the universe. We're given grace. We're given, uh, we're given what we do not deserve. We're given God's riches that we did not earn. Jesus earned them for us. We're given peace. And that grace and peace comes with every spiritual blessing that is in the heavenly places. I don't know about you, but this seems kind of like a five-course meal of goodness, and we're not even sitting at the table yet. We're like walking into the door of the restaurant and just got greeted by the hostess, and we're just getting a waft of what we're about to eat in the book of Ephesians. I'm telling you, Paul, in this letter, is trying to gospel-saturate these churches so much so that when they get squeezed by the cultural and spiritual battle of their day, they will just burst out with gospel joy, showing the goodness and kindness that is found in Jesus. I don't know what you're facing today, but I know this. Whatever it is, if you're in Christ, if it's not bursting out with Jesus, that is not your identity. Your job struggles, they don't define you. No, Jesus' riches, they define you. 
your financial woes, your emotional battles, your relationship struggles, your parenting hardships, your sickness, your angst and waiting. Yes, it may affect your day, but know this, it is absolutely not your identity. No, our identity is child of God, redeemed saint, and shower with grace and peace, with access to every spiritual blessing that is found in the heavenly places. Y'all, when we open up those little notebooks that say who we are, the vast majority of it, of it is who we are in Christ. And the other small portion is how God has uniquely made us and gifted us to bless those around us. This city, our city and our neighbors and our coworkers are grasping just to figure out who they are. And here we are with this immeasurable, unshakable blessing and treasure of gospel identity that is found in Jesus that overtakes every spiritual force in the cosmic universe that causes magicians to just hand over multiple lifetimes of wages as an act of repentance and all, shuddering under the mercy of God that we see in the book of Acts in Ephesus. And here it is, that power and blessing and identity likely overflow, like overflowing like a waterfall, just living inside of us, overflowing with resurrection power, ready to be given and handed out to everyone in our city that is thirsty, thirsty and grasping for it. And all we have to say is just, come and drink like here's the water this is what you're looking for well, over the next 12 to 13 weeks week after week after week we're going to be go through ephesians 1 through 3 and i'm praying that this gospel treasure will just be taken and, and drunk as a water to restore many many souls around us including you and me and so let me ask who in your life can we invite to just come and drink Invite them to come next week to our birthday party. They'll tell them we'll have barbecue. Maybe they'll come for the barbecue and leave with Jesus. Again, if you're here today and you've uh, accepted Jesus and you haven't taken that first step of obedience and baptism, let next week be the day where you show the world the blessing you have found in Christ, showing off your new gospel identity. The old is gone, the new is, has come. You know, I'm praying that in 2023, uh, this will be the year that New City Church is just in all of God, maybe more than we've ever been before. And not because of what He does through us, but simply just because of who He is and just what He invites us into. And I really believe that the book of Ephesians, it won't disappoint to lead us in that direction. New City, this is the book of Ephesians. It's all about Jesus and the church. And it shows us that Jesus, he is our foundation. Let's pray. God, you're so good to us. God, you've given us everything we will ever need in Christ Jesus. You've given us access to all the riches in the heavenly places. God, you've called us redeemed saints. We're saints. You called us holy and set apart. Would we live knowing that this is our identity, that we are in Christ? We're in Christ. God, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know how you're working in the hearts and lives of the people here, but I just believe with my whole heart that you are working deeply with many of us in immeasurable ways. God, would we just be in all of who you are? We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.